Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guests are Evren Odchikin, who is a Bay Area director. He's also the director of new plays and marketing for Golden Thread Productions, He's gone directing for Golden Thread, Impact Theater, Custom Made, Brava, graduate of Princeton, born and raised in Turkey. And he is the director of a play called The Most Dangerous Highway by Kevin Arteague, which plays through May 29th at Thick House in San Francisco. It's a Golden Thread production. Also with me in the studio, Humaira Gilzai, who is the cultural consultant for the play, raised in Kabul, Afghanistan, has a website, Afghan Culture Unveiled, co-founder of the Afghan Friends Network. But we're mostly here to talk about this play, The Most Dangerous Highway. It follows an eight-year-old who directs traffic on the highway between Jalalabad and Kabul, Let's start at the beginning, Evren. How did you hear about this play? Was the play created for Golden Thread? What are the origins of the play? Kevin Artik, who's the writer, wrote the play uh, while he was getting his MFA in Iowa. The play was sent to us through that program because it was about Afghanistan and Golden Thread focuses on the Middle East. Or is the country's first company to focus on the Middle East. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. So when we received it, we read it and absolutely fell in love with it. We were actually quite shocked to find out that the writer was not of Middle Eastern descent, just because the play felt so rich and sort of with detail and information. So we programmed it actually about two years ago, a year and a half, two years ago, as part of our new Threads reading series. And Kevin came out and worked with a lot of our actors and our community. And that went really, really well. And we got a great response to the play. And since then, we continued to develop it through the National New Play Showcase. Kevin and I worked together in Florida on the play. And then Playwrights Foundation also did a reading of it leading up to the world premiere. So we've been working on this show for about three years. And then Homera joined us during the last workshop. And it's been absolutely great to have her expertise on the play as well. When you first read the play, what exactly excited you? And also, what's the difference between the play you read three years ago Mm -hmm. and the play that is going to be at Thick House? The thing that I love about the play is the world of it. It's this um, incredibly real world that also feels very heightened. This boy is surviving against all odds and the sort of the hope and the heart of that boy you sort of fall in love with. And then the language feels in certain parts very coarse and everyday and then in other parts very heightened and poetic and beautiful. So the way Kevin was able to sort of mix those two things felt really right. You know, in terms of 
the story of it, and Homera and I have talked about this before, the play does have obviously war as an element in it um, because if you're going to write a play about Afghanistan that deals with the last 30, 40 years, that's going to be part of the story. But it's that's really the context. That's not what the play is about. It, the play is about real people who are surviving or trying to keep living their lives and get to the next thing. And that is rare. Uh, as a person who reads a lot of plays about the Middle East as the director of new plays from Golden Thread, I feel like it's a region that usually gets defined by the conflict that is taking place there rather than the people. And that was really lovely. In terms of how the play has changed since then, there's a lot more of it. We had a very strong understanding of what happened to Traffic, the lead character, but there are other characters that come in and their stories were incomplete when we first got it. And through doing more research, talking to a lot of Afghans, including Homera, and just really a lot of the work with the actors, we were able to sort of expand a lot of those stories and create, I feel like, a fuller picture of all of the characters. Homera Gilzai, when you came in, what did you see and what kind of changes did you help make? I have worked on a variety of different plays that are set in Afghanistan as well as uh, film. So I usually go in with the idea of bringing as much cultural authenticity into a production. And, and like Everin said, this play had a lot of great depth and research, and it was clear that Kevin had done his work. But there were just a lot of minor things that you would have to have live there or to experience it. Like what? For example, naming some characters. Some of the names that uh, just jumped at me were used in that part of the world, but they weren't necessarily a female name in Afghanistan, whereas in neighboring Iran, it was a female name. Or some of the words that the characters used, some of the English language, it was not translatable into Dari. Whenever I work on a play, I translate in my head, would an Afghan say these words or would they say them in this order and such? But uh, to be honest with you, it hasn't been a ton of major changes. Kevin and I worked really closely to, you know, fine tune some parts of the play, both on the cultural authenticity, but also to not necessarily make it a common Afghanistan theme of, you know, Taliban oppressing women or the things that we constantly hear about. Because this, I feel, Golden Threads, the work that they do is so different than the mainstream media. And then, of course, when I've been in the rehearsals, I work very closely uh, with the actors to make sure that they are using the language correctly and, and portraying their characters the way an Afghan would. Does that include sight? some, you know, hand gestures too? Yes, definitely. Hand gestures, how you sit, how you greet, where you touch. One of the first things I always say to the the actors are, open your mouth really big when you're speaking <laughs> the Dari words. And it sounds very strange, but that is one way to get the pronunciation correctly. In this play, we have two young actors who are, you know, amazing. Uh, so helping them understand that world, you know, they're both San Francisco kids. They were born and raised here. So how do they put themselves in an Afghan kid's shoe makes a big difference. The character 
is supposed to be eight years old. How old is the actual actor? He's 13. Both of our actors are significantly older than the parts they're playing, but I think people who come see it will be really surprised to find out that Kieran is 13 because he's the lead and he's on stage the whole time and has to sort of carry the emotional weight of the play. Older has helped a lot. Well, Everin, you worked also on the casting, I would of assume. Of course, yeah. So when he walked in, you looked and said, he looks right, I keep my fingers crossed, yeah. <laughs> that kind of no, thing. No, I mean, you know, and when you're working on a culturally or specific play, it can be really difficult because there is look for sure, you know, there is culture for sure, and then there is talent for sure, but then can you find the one person who's going to be able to sort of mix all of those things and is responding to me personally or the language? And he's been absolutely, I mean, he was such a great find and we were so excited to meet him. And then he's been working very, very hard because if you think about it, uh, for a 13-year-old to have to take on this sort of a big emotional role with adults, it's all adults in the room with him and sort of counting on him to deliver the center of the play. I've been so impressed with how sort of mature and hard, you know, his work ethic has been really, really impressive. How quickly did it take him to go off book? Oh, that's actually been not that bad. Really? Um, Yeah, I mean, I feel like with kids, you know, they can memorize things really quickly. You know, we do have some older actors in the show, so you never know. With them, it can be harder. The lines have not been an issue at all. It's really, with young actors, you sort of have to be very specific in terms of what it is that you're looking for or what you want to change and really making sure that, and especially because as Homero said, you know, he's from San Francisco and he's never been to Afghanistan and the story is, uh, has a lot of detail and really making sure that he's able to parse through the language to get to the story and the meaning. Um, that's been really great. But we've, you know, have an acting coach, Valerie Week, who's working with them. So uh, we've had a great team between Valerie Homera, myself, and uh, Taranji Giazarian, who's our artistic director, who's had a great amount of time with them. I feel like they're very well supported. Humera Gilza, you say you work closely with that playwright. I know that a lot of playwrights, obviously not Kevin, but others, kind of bristle at people telling them what to write. Have you had that problem in the past where they suddenly go, yeah, I know what's wrong, but this is mine? I have not. And up to now, I've worked with six different playwrights as well as a movie script. And the thing that I find is when a playwright is working on a part of the world that they are not from. They are well served to listen to someone like me who will help them bring cultural authenticity. And I've been lucky enough to work with very mature playwrights who have been great. And what I don't necessarily look at something and say, this is wrong. I usually look at something and say, well, this doesn't feel right to me as a person from that culture. And then I give them two or three suggestions as an alternative, and they get to choose it. And uh, I'm a writer as well. And I, when I work with an editor, that works the best for me when they explain to me what is not working. And then I ultimately find uh, the answer to the change. When you're directing Everin, does that ever play a role where somebody's saying to you, you know, this is what I want, and then you're going, yeah, but it can't take it in the direction I want to do it, and I'm kind of caught. Has that ever happened? 
Of course. I mean, it's uh, theater is a collaborative sport. As a director, your job is to bring everybody's ideas to the table and create a space in which everyone is doing their best work and then to guide everyone so that they're all working towards the same goal. And there are always hiccups through the process where people aren't agreeing and that might be the writer or the designer or an actor. The thing I love about working at Golden Thread actually is and I don't know if this is culturally specific or it's just personality specific to our leadership, but that kind of conversation or friction is not looked upon as a bad thing because it is not. Um, if we all get along all the time, it usually doesn't lead to the best art. So that friction, that disagreement or that pull and push, as long as it's not about ego, but it's actually about doing a better job ends up being much better. What makes you think that if you all agree all the time, it's not going to produce the best art? Is that just uh, something you've seen? Yeah. I mean, I find that what I enjoy in art is a sense of tension. And not to say that people need to be disrespectful. You know what I mean? You want to be respectful and sort of support each other. And you need to be coming from a place of, I think you're amazing. But if that happens, that sense of tension, that sense of pushing against something can really create a sort of certain electricity on stage that is much better than when a process is all very easy all the time. And to me, if everything is easy, you're not doing the right stuff. I'm interested in plays that are dealing with difficult things, that are dealing with difficult issues, that are dealing with difficult emotions. So it takes all of our pushing against that thing, against that topic, against that play to get it somewhere. And this play has been no exception. It's a beautiful play, but it's a hard play, linguistically, content-wise, details-wise. And I feel like Homera and I are two of many people who've been sort of pushing against this play, including Kevin, the writer, to get it somewhere. When it works, it's really, really thrilling. Is this play a comedy, a drama, somewhere between? Is there any difference when you're working on this play, on the most dangerous highway in the world, versus the comedy that you were working on last year at Custom Made, Evren? Yes, very different. I mean, that's one of the joys of directing is I feel like I get to live in very different worlds, like two months at a time. I would say it's a drama with a lot of funny moments. As I said, the play really deals with the life in Afghanistan. And like many other places in the Middle East and Central Asia, there is a very amazing sense of humor uh, in all Afghans I've met. And there's certainly, I feel like that humor is reflected in this play. So even in the darkest of situations, there is a laugh. That's something that draws me to this play. But it is, at the end of the day, I would say, a drama. It sort of tells this kid's story who is doing everything he can to survive against all odds in this very difficult spot that he finds himself. In terms of the difference of it, uh, the play you're talking about, The Braggart Soldier, was a plaudus comedy. It's a Roman comedy. It's, it was so incredibly and beautifully stupid. You know, that one was so much more physical it was really about timing and physicality and sort of everything was very large from the costumes to the sets to the people to the actors acting. Whereas this play, 
has a lot of physical reality to it. You know, he's chasing cars around the whole play, but it's so much more rooted in something real. And, you know, in a way, that's why we have Homera <laughs> on the show with us is because we want to get that sense of reality in the play. So it's a very different process from beginning to end. Mara, let's go back to you for a moment here. Uh, you were born in Kabul and raised there, but you came to the U.S. in 79, was mm-hmm. it? Have you been back since? Yes, I've been back several times. Right after 9-11, I co-founded a nonprofit called Afghan Friends Network, and we have educational programs for women, girls, and boys in a remote province of Afghanistan called Ghazni. So I go to Afghanistan every couple of years. I was there last year this time. This year doesn't look like it's in the cards for me to go. The first time I went back after living in the United States was in 2006, and that was quite a shock for me having gone to school here and uh, finished university and started a family, and then all of a sudden as a grown uh, woman going back. How old were you when you left? I was 11. So you do remember that period, what it was like before the Taliban came in? Absolutely. We were there actually right after the revolution, the coup d'etat, where uh, the Afghan president Daoud Khan was overthrown and the Russians invaded Afghanistan. That lasted for over nine years. And then there was a five-year civil war and then the Taliban came. So when you left Kabul, it hadn't been damaged, or was it? Kabul was very much intact. I was there for a whole year after the communist uh, government had taken over, and definitely spiritually the country, uh, even the city, had been affected um, because there were a lot of people who left the country. A lot of people were imprisoned, like my father and uncle and such. So although it wasn't physically damaged, but definitely the spirit of the people were affected. What about last year? Last year, it was a very interesting trip for me because I did my pilgrimage to Mecca, and then I went to Afghanistan. In Saudi Arabia, I felt very restricted, especially in the uh, Muslim shrines as far as how you dress, how you present yourself. I shouldn't say restricted, but I had to be very careful about following the rules. Well, landing in Afghanistan, I felt like I landed in the free world because I could wear just a small headscarf and wear, you know, generally my Western clothes and be able to walk by myself and nobody bothered me. But there was a very strong sense of tension, mostly because at every mile of the road uh, or the city, there was some kind of a roadblock. There were a lot more soldiers. So yes, the city was secure, but it felt like it was under some kind of military siege. So that's what made it feel less comfortable for me. Did you leave Kabul at all or? This past year, no. But prior to that, on all my trips, I went to Ghazni, which is the province that we uh, do all of our work. Um, But there's been a strong resurgence of the Taliban. And for me, it's one thing to take the risk and travel. But if I go with other people, I am risking other people's lives as well. So I'm very cognizant of not uh, putting other people in danger. And we did not go. Uh, Have you ever been on the highway where... um the most dangerous highway 
play takes place. Absolutely. When I was a young girl, we used to go from Kabul to Jalalabad every winter as a big family, and we would have a caravan of cars going because Jalalabad is a little bit like the San Diego of uh, Afghanistan. So we'd get away from the cold Kabul and go to Jalalabad for two weeks or so. What seemed really interesting was that I remember on the way to Jalalabad, it felt like so long we would never get there. But then on the way home, the time went by really fast. And, you know, we were like, oh, we have to go back to our regular lives. So I have very good memories of that. When I was in Cambodia not long ago, just as a tourist, it felt very strange to be in a place where everybody's peaceful and things are going, knowing that in the 70s, what was there was a horror. Do you kind of feel the reverse now about Afghanistan, where in your memory it's this peaceful place and then you know the difference? Not really, partially because what I have experienced when I've gone to uh, Afghanistan is, yes, the presence of military, but I have not been in you know, in a situation where there were sh shootings and such. So it doesn't feel so different. And, and the other thing for me was that the first time I went back in 2006, uh, I felt the city looked really familiar to me. I felt that growing up in the United States as a refugee and my family losing their wealth and their status and such, I never felt 100% accepted here. But when I went back, I felt right at home. So although there was some destruction and things did look different, but in a way it felt very much at home. So I don't have that kind of a relationship of, you know, war and peace. It's just anywhere is going to change in 30 years. And at the time that I arrived in Afghanistan, most of Kabul had been rebuilt. So I did not see the destruction that there was in 2001. Did you talk to a lot of people, particularly women who had survived under the Taliban and what they told you? Oh, absolutely. I still have an aunt and, and cousins who still live there. What is amazing is that as human being, we're beings, we're really adaptable. We adapt to our situation. But what really struck me about Afghan people, and you will see it in this play, is the resilience. I mean, despite the fact that so many Afghans have been through so much hardship and loss, and there's still this sense of life and happiness and joy, and people were smiling. And so I was really surprised that doom and gloom that I expected from them did not come across to me. And I have been there many times. Uh, and I just feel that Afghans are looking forward to, like, to the future. They're looking towards peace. They're looking towards instability rather than hanging out in the past. Humera Gilzai, what do they think of the U.S.? Most of the Afghans that I have spoken to are very pleased with the U.S. being there and freeing them from the Taliban. The thing that I think has been frustrating for Afghans is not just the U.S., but the international community's promises that were made to the Afghan people that were not delivered. So it's more like on a high level of government to government as opposed to people to people. Everyone that I have met uh, love Americans. They love John Senna, the uh, WWF wrestler. So there's a lot of American culture there, and then people are very positive towards it. But I think it's more the policy and the government being let down that has been a disappointment. 
Yeah, when I was in Cambodia and I was in my hotel room, the weirdest thing was getting on my iPad and watching Netflix. They have Netflix in Afghanistan? No. But the Afghan media has exploded. Yeah. Basically, in the past 15 years, it went from a country where there was no TV aside from Quran reading to having over like 100 channels accessible, so many different Afghan programs, Afghan star, Afghan TV shows. They literally copy everything that happens in the, you know, the voice. And there's a very robust community of artists, musicians who have basically come out of hiding and now they're in public. Yeah, that's been very, very exciting. If I go to anywhere, South America, Europe, Asia, right? And I have the food there. And then I come back and eat here. I'm going, oh, this is just not the same. Is Afghan food that we might have at a restaurant here in the Bay Area, is that anything like the Afghan food you'll find in Kabul? Well, that was one of the shocking things to me is the food we get here is better. And the reason I say that is that in the 34 years of war, what has happened is the people who really contributed to the Afghan gourmet food and the development of the food left. There was an exodus from the country. So now that the people who live in Kabul, let's say, are mostly provincial people and their style of food is much more simpler, not as like multi-layered taste. I actually have an Afghan food blog, so I actually know this from personal experience. Like, for example, people like my mom and her peers have amazing recipes, and their food tastes so much better than what I've tasted in Kabul. Now, there are family members' homes that I've gone to who have served delicious food, but the restaurants literally felt like everything was watered down. And it also could be because spices weren't available for so many periods of time. A lot of Afghans went to Pakistan and Iran, so their cooking was influenced by the neighboring countries. So I feel like the food that I tasted in Kabul was a watered-down version of what you would get here in the Bay Area, some of the good restaurants, or when my mom or my relatives would cook. What are a couple of really good restaurants in the Bay Area? There is an Afghan restaurant called Deafghanan, so D-E-A-F-G-H-A-N-N. They have restaurant in Fremont, and they actually have one in San Francisco on Geary Street. Uh, there's also Kabul Restaurant, like the city of Kabul. There's one in San Carlos and another one in Sunnyvale. And I find that their food is consistently good, very flavorful, and they've been around for like over 20 years. Evren Ochikin, how familiar are you with Turkish culture I was born and raised there, and I came here for college, so I spent the first 18 years of my life in Turkey, and I go back all the time to visit family, and I became an American citizen recently. So, Are you from uh, the Istanbul area? Um, I grew up in Izmit, which is about an hour east of Istanbul. I sort of say it's almost like the Trenton of Turkey. It's like New York. Istanbul is New York City and Izmit is Trenton, sort right. of industrial and neighboring, but very close. Um, but I went to school in Istanbul for seven years. I've always been fascinated by Istanbul. People I know go call it the San Francisco of Asia. 
it's very neighborhoody. So there is many, there are many, many neighborhoods. It's right by the water. We have the bridges, which sort of works too. But um, sort of all of the neighborhoods have their own sort of small culture and uh, sort of sense of themselves, which is, feels very much like Bay Area. And um, actually, um, Sausalito feels, um, the first time I went to Sausalito, I came out of the the ferry and it was, I just looked around and I actually thought I was in this neighborhood called Bebek, which is uh, where my school was when I was in Istanbul. It, I had just been transported. And I thought maybe it's just me. So when I had a friend come visit me from Turkey, my best friend, John, I took him to Sausalito and it was the same thing. He came out of the ferry and he just looked around and said, this feels really familiar. Um, so yes, I, I mean, I don't know if that's why I ended up in San Francisco, but um, certainly there's a great sense of that sort of by the water, liberal, you know, cosmopolitan city. Yeah, well, I've interviewed Orhan Pamuk a couple oh, of times, so, you know. I, I love his writing. Orhan Pamuk is sort of the leader of the, I call it like Istanbul melancholy, which is a very Turkish thing, like aging empire sadness of the sort of the intellectual class in Istanbul. And he has a beautiful, beautiful books, but I feel like he sort of represents that. And I sometimes, when I read his books, I sort of remember that feeling of Istanbul, the sort of aging empire. What I found with him is that um, this time I talked to him and because Turkey is really cut down on free speech, he's got to be extremely careful. Mm -hmm. And that's new. Is that something that you've felt when you've gone back? Of course, yes. Um, I mean, uh, the new government is, uh, I find, quite dangerous, (laughs) actually. What's been funny about it is I went back about three times in the last two years. And every time I go, because I'm coming from where I am, I can see how much it has changed just the way it feels, the way people are, sort of the unhappiness factor in Turkey has like every time it sort of raises. And it's kind of interesting because whenever I talk to my brother or uh, my mom, um, they're sort of not as aware of it because they're sort of living in it and it's gradual. What do they think of Trump? The last time I went, Trump wasn't a politician, but I can only imagine that they think he's an idiot. I didn't talk to any Thai people who... Mm were aware of what's going on, but um, at one point I was talking to somebody from Scandinavia who said, what is it with you Americans? And all I could do was like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that is always the hardest thing. And it's in a way, Homera has this job of being an Afghan cultural consultant. And it's sometimes when you're visiting, you know, as an American, when I go back to Turkey or I go anywhere, you sort of have to be the person who's speaking for the Americans. And it's kind of impossible to do. And I think if you're working on culturally specific plays and you're a cultural consultant, that's also really important that you're sort of giving people, and she's so good at this, uh, giving us a sense of what it's like without actually ever saying, this is what Afghans do. You know, because that's just like too general a statement. We can't say, because... Trump is American and I'm American and we have very little in common. And that's true of Afghanistan as well. You know, so it's um, I think that's always a funny thing when you feel like you have to be a representative for a culture or a country or uh, a people for another people. And they might have very misinformed conceptions about who you are because of media. Have you found that to be the case when you go to Afghanistan? Suddenly you're an American in Afghanistan. 
in general, because I speak Dari and I am able to present myself in a way where they know I have some Afghan origin, they don't really tag me as an American because that would be an insult. <laughs> but I have had uh, Afghan women ask me, uh, because I'm married to an American, how could you marry an American? And I said, well, why? And they said, well, in all the shows we see, American men cheat on their wives. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and then Afghan men don't? And she was like, well, yes, they do, but they're all idiots. We already know that. <laughs> You have a choice to marry whoever. Why did you marry an American? So those generalization or actually when I was in Saudi Arabia, I was in a, a mosque of Muhammad in um, uh, Medina. And I was sitting next to this uh, Arab woman who was completely veiled. I could just see her eyes. She had three beautiful children. So I asked her if I can take pictures of them. And then she spoke beautiful English and, and asked me, do all American women think that Arab women are oppressed? So putting on my cultural consultant hat, I was like, well, not all American women. So I really had to be careful. At the same time, we do have this perception of Arab women. She didn't really wait for my answer, fortunately. Uh, and she went on to tell me, you know, how she feels that she has so much freedom and she's like the queen of her house because her husband, her brother, her father are all at her beck and call to drive her around. And that she, her husband's job was to, you know, provide her a home and, and she feels that she's really respected. And I thought that was a very interesting perspective and, and very different uh, than what I would have thought an Arab woman would feel or what I thought of an Arab woman. So I really enjoyed talking to her and, and she had her master's in English and she taught and her kids went to daycare. Kind of after a while, I, I didn't even see her veil anymore because we were just talking like to women and and sharing about our families and such. Evren Odchikin, you were marketing director at ACT. Do you ever feel like you miss the ACT world? I loved working there. As is the case with a lot of American artists, uh, we have to figure out our day job situation uh, as we're building our careers and the artistic side. So, um, you know, I worked at Magic Theater as I was their director of marketing. I've been at ACT as their PR manager. And then I was at KQED uh, for three years after that uh, for my day jobs. And I sort of learned so much from all of those jobs and got such incredible support, both on the administrative side and also for my artistic work. Do I miss it? I love what I do and the sort of the artistic work. I do is what I want to do. So it's really great to be able to focus on that. And Golden Thread has been um, an artistic home for me for about 10 years. So it's really amazing to feel like I can be there full time and uh, really impact the way the company works. So I guess the short answer is no, but I don't want it to sound like I didn't love my time there because I really, really did. The thing about the ACT job that was really incredible is because I was doing PR, I was sort of taking artists around for interviews. I got to sit in on a lot of rehearsals, so I got to watch John Doyle work for days and days, and I got to have very personal conversations with them. 
Olympia Dukakis sort of asked me about my directing, and you know we got this kind of, have these conversations, and that those were such gifts in the middle of the administrative work. And whenever you're working at a theater of ACT's caliber, I feel like you're gonna be exposed to great art and great artists, and that I really really appreciate and sort of I feel like I've taken with me as I move on to the artistic side of my work. Well, from talking to, to John Doyle, mm-hmm. um, is there anything specific you got out of him, you think? I mean, it was really helpful because we were, um, this was over martinis uh, one night after uh, the, the opening, and he uh, just said, he was t- asking me how everything, you know, how I was doing, and I was talking about how difficult it was, and he was like, ah, oh, so difficult to get started and it was just really nice to hear that because a lot of people will tell you like oh you're young and so exciting and it's you know sort of that's so fun and um and it was really great to hear somebody who's sort of at the level that he is saying that no what you're dealing with is actually terrible (laughs) so that felt really great and from him i think from watching his rehearsals i just loved how flexible he was and how purposefully open he kept his rehearsal process for those um, happy accidents to take place and for actors to show him things he hadn't planned and um, to see someone who's working at that level moving that kind of machine forward because when you're directing a production at ACT it's a huge machine involving many many people um, and a lot of money Um, it was really inspiring to see someone who's working at that level really be flexible and open and artistic about his decisions and really value the, every single person who was in his room as an artist, as a collaborator. And I, um, that's something that I still actually think about frequently as I'm leading my rehearsals. Well, when you're working with the people on uh, the most dangerous highway, mm-hmm. do you think that opens you up as a director specifically for this play? Specifically for this play, of course. I mean, this play is really interesting for me in the sense that I'm Turkish. I was born and raised there. And so I have some cultural competency when it comes to sort of Middle Eastern cultures in general. But um, through this process, I've actually even learned for myself how many misconceptions I had of Afghanistan. And that can be as specific as like how people behave, but also about Afghan music. It sounds completely different. Homera was very helpful in this, where I sent her some Turkish music, and I was like, is there anything in Afghanistan that sounds like this? And she was basically said no. <laughs> um, I didn't say no. I said, listen to, to this. And-, and see if that's... And it was, and, you know, and to me, music is a great way to get into a culture, so that was very, very helpful. So in this process, I'm, like any process, I'm trying to set up a situation in which where the play is the king. So it's really about telling the story the right way and telling the story in the most impactful way for an American audience. So everyone in that room is going to have better ideas than me. That's sort of how I believe. And I have a very specific vision for the piece and I have a lot of ideas, but those ideas need to be flexible enough to be able to change as other people push against them. So in that way, yeah. I mean, this play has been a great learning experience for me, actually, Um, not just because of Afghanistan, but working with a writer like Kevin that's as open uh, to work. And those kind of conversations I've been able to have with him for three years where I feel very much inside the play 
you know, like I've been there from the first draft, which is a very different thing than getting a completed script and doing your production of it. So, um, yeah, the whole process has been actually a very artistically fulfilling and a lot of learning has happened for me as an artist through this play. According to the uh, Golden Thread website, there's only one other play scheduled for the coming year? Yes, we do um, two full productions a year. And that's Our Enemies, Lively Scenes of Love and Combat? Yes. Uh, are you the director? Or? No, I'm Taranji Giazarian, who's our founding artistic director, is directing that one. And that one is by Youssef Al-Gindi, who's uh, an Egyptian-American award-winning playwright. And we've done many plays of his. Um, I directed his last play at Golden Thread Language Rooms. He's the most produced playwright in Golden Thread history. So it's actually the season as our 20th anniversary. It feels very appropriate that we're doing a play by someone who's been very much part of our family and is an artistic associate. And then Kevin Artik, who's completely new to us and is the first writer of non-Middle Eastern descent to be produced on our main stage. So it feels like we're really showcasing the breadth of everything Golden Thread is about and in terms of how we represent this region and the kind of plays we do um, in our 20th anniversary, which is a you know, big deal for us. And what do you have coming up as a director after The Most Dangerous Highway? In terms of full productions, I don't have anything till 2017, but I will be directing at the Kennedy Center in D.C. and then uh, working at Interact in Philadelphia on workshops of different plays. And then I'm going to be producing our enemies because uh, Taranj and I, as the two artistic uh, administrators on the company, uh, we sort of tag team this way. So she's producing this one while I direct, and she's going to be directing that one, and I produce. We do have new Thread stage reading series, which will be in June and July, which I program and manage. So um, that's four writers and plays about and from the Middle East that we're going to be sort of presenting and uh, helping develop uh, with the hope that a lot of them will go on to productions with us in the following years. And Humaira Gilzai, you have your couple of blogs. I have uh, Afghan Culture Unveiled, which is an Afghan food and culture blog. I also have my nonprofit, Afghan Friends Network, where we continue to educate girls and boys in Afghanistan. And I do the cu cultural consulting as well. In addition to working with this play, I've been working directly with another playwright, Gabriel Jason Dean, who is workshopping another play set in Afghanistan. And then I'll be working with uh, ACT on A Thousand Splendid Sons. So I'm always lucky because I'm involved in with all these world premieres, which requires a lot of uh, tweaking. So I'm looking forward uh, to working on that play. And I'm also in the process of editing uh, my novel that I've written. So those are some of the things that I'm, uh, I have in the works right now. You've been listening to an interview with Evren Odchikin and Humaira Gilzai, Evren Odchikin is the director, and Humaira is the cultural consultant for the play The Most Dangerous Highway in the World by Kevin Arteague, which is playing Thursday through Sundays through May 29th at Thick House in San Francisco. It's a production of Golden Thread, and you can find out more information by going to goldenthread.org. And Humaira's website is titled afghancultureunveiled.com. That's one word. <laughs> to listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. 
or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.